Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, people, I woke up this morning and I woke up early. Joanne wakes up too early. I don't know why. She wakes up like 5.30 in the morning. So I wake up. Plus, I also wake up because I'm getting older. So I always have to use the bathroom early in the morning, which I never had to. I say at 4.30 in the morning, it happens. But I went to the bathroom and I came back and Joanne was up. And she said, she goes, I'm getting ready to go to the gym. And it turned out at like 5.30 in the morning today, the humidity was 78%. Now, I grew up back east. I know what humidity is. And people used to always say to me, Burbank is very humid. Well, no, no, Burbank is like 45% humidity. But just recently, it's been going through the roof. So I, I hope it stops because, you know, when I grew up, the humidity, you would get out of the shower and you have to take another shower, even when the air conditioning was on. And it was just awful. And you could like get out of your house, you can walk a block and your shirt would be wet. So I hope Burbank doesn't come to that i hope it's not global warming so anyway enough about that we have a great guest my first guest is from uh grew up in brooklyn my guest is larry thomas how you doing larry good good how are you good so you know about the humidity i mean oh yeah have you noticed it lately in la or just a little bit i i have i travel around so much that lately i've been in vast humidity like in pittsburgh and and then i uh, spent some time in phoenix where it's really dry and then i came back here so the slightest bit of humidity here, you kind of notice because you're not used to it. So, so you you grew up in Brooklyn. Now, as a kid, I mean, you, you might have, did you always want to be an actor? Like, as a kid, did you want to be an actor? No, actually, not. Not that I wouldn't have wanted to be, but when you grow up in a place like Brooklyn and nobody in your family has ever been in the entertainment business, you know, it's not something you think that is possible. You you see the faces on the screen and you go like well they got discovered you know so if anybody ever discovered me great that would be really cool but i didn't think it was something you could study and choose and all that that all just happened by accident i was going to valley college which is right near here because you had moved and, out here yeah we had moved out here and i went to high school here and i was going to valley college and i was majoring in journalism and uh actually liked it a lot you know i wrote a couple of stories for the school newspaper and it seemed like that was my direction but then i met a girl and she was a theater major and i just thought in the essence of getting a date with her wouldn't it be easier if i took a couple of theater classes right. you know so i looked at the schedule and i took like beginning voice and diction and beginning acting and uh i just the second i got up and had to do a speech i realized this is the most exciting thing i've ever done what made you want to follow into journalism? I mean, were you uh, were you an avid reader? Were you a sports fan? I mean, because like journalism, I mean, journalism uh, is is different now. I mean, back in the day, journalism was like it was cool because you know you'd work for if you got a job at a newspaper, and especially for a sports writer or a column writer, it was a big thing. Now anyone can be a journalism because there's like websites like bittersuck.com or, <laughs> or all these websites where and then everyone thinks they're journalists. People go on the Yelp and they think they're journalists because they write nine paragraphs about why the uh the steak it's a gaucho grill suck. I mean what made you want to what made you want to write? Well, writing is always something I was interested in. Um as a kid the the cl only classes I enjoyed were, you know, the English classes and I liked reading and uh it also might have come from when I was a kid and I was delivering newspapers. I was always in and around newspapers and just folding the papers. You know, you read the a story on the front page or whatever. And at some somewhere, it just I got it in my mind that for me, the best kind of writing would be to you know report on things, the news and so forth. And then it also seemed like an exciting job that you wouldn't be in an office; you'd be out and about and um, and uh, it was it was proving to be that I was loving those classes. You know, those journalism classes were so fascinating to me. I remember the communications class. Well, we were we were studying advertising, and one of the teachers, you know, told us the story that when breakfast cereal was new and they were claiming it was fortified with vitamins and minerals, and somebody tried an experiment and cut up the box and put milk on it and it had the same exact vitamin vitamins and minerals as the cereal with milk on it so it was it was just the whole world of it was kind of fascinating to me and it still is you know i like god i was nuts about newsroom and i, I already am about aaron sorkin anyway but i just clung to every episode of that it was like two worlds i love aaron sork the world of aaron sorkin and you know the world of 
of news and reporting put together in such a great way. What's great about Newsroom is, I mean, if you, you know, Jeff D'Angelo is an amazing actor, but if you ask for the perfect person to play that role, it's Jeff Daniels because he looks like a news, one of the new, like a like news guy. Mm-hmm. And then what I love about him is then you sit around and you watch Dumb and Dumber and it's totally across screen and you go, wait a second, that's acting where, you know, he's like an idiot, but this, he, I mean, I love Newsroom too. I, I was pissed. That it was only it's know, done, and it's like, hey, hey, we're gonna give you a five. We're gonna give you five episodes. That's it. I don't feel honestly, it's mm-hmm. like I just started watching. Uh, I've been watching True Detective, and the first few episodes were really slow. And then the third episode, there's this great thing. It kicks ass. I think it's the third or fourth episode. I'm like, all right, I can get back into it. Let me watch the last week, and they go three episodes left. I go, uh, what happened to this eight I season, know. eight episode season well, crap? That's cable. You know, that's the thing about cable is they offer you these great shows because they have more leeway. And they only give you about eight of them. It's that's awful. And it's yeah, it, it you you know you want more, and uh, but I, I you know I always say about Aaron Sorkin is well you know somebody uh, said something about Michelle Pfeiffer the other day and they said God I used to have the biggest crush on her and then she married Aaron Sorkin and all I did was envy her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now now you, when you went to Valley College you got into act you said you started taking acting yeah. classes. Now did you? When you graduated college and when you graduated Valley College, you decided I want to pursue acting. I mean, when, when did you make that decision? I made that decision right away because it was it was literally at 21. I'd say that that half the department was younger than me. Um, the other half were about around my age. And then there was the occasional like elderly person who was just doing it for fun when they were retired and stuff. But it was kind of a risky decision. And. One of the teachers, in no uncertain terms, said, so what's your story? And I said, well, I come from the journalism department right here, and I did this kind of on a whim, but now I really feel like I want to do it. And he said, go back to the journalism department. <laughs> he goes, I, I saw you do that that scene. So I wasn't actually good at it, but I did have a lot of time on my hands. I don't come from a family where where anybody puts any pressure on you. It was just, you know, my gypsy mom, my sister, and myself. So I could really do whatever I wanted. And it was a whim. It was like, wow, this is exciting. I'd like to do this. And, uh, but I, I also was told that I wasn't showing any spark of being good at it. And, uh, and then to add insult to injury, Kevin Spacey showed up out of Chatsworth High. That was his first stop Many he probably doesn't write about it or talk about it, but he did have one little stop on the way from high school to Juilliard, and it was Valley College. Oh, wow, that's so funny. But he only stayed about half a semester. I mean, he he took the place by storm. Everybody wanted to star him in their plays, and he basically looked around and he said, "I shouldn't be here," you know. And he and uh, he even said it to me one day. He said, "You know, I'm I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to New York." And he goes, "You should go to New York." You know, it's. I think in a, in a very nice way, he was telling me I needed lots of work, and he goes, <laughs> he goes, that's the place for you to learn, and uh, I totally missed the point, you know, totally cluelessly. I said, well, you know, I'm from New York, and one of these days I'll go back to New York, but I thought I'd just hang around here for a while. I got lots of friends, and it was just I missed totally missed his communication. So I yeah, I should have you know gotten on a uh, plane with Kevin Spacey and gone to New York. There you go. You know what a great lead in. But uh, but I just worked at it. And someone asked me the other day, when did you realize that you could learn acting and singing? And most people think you can't learn that stuff. And I said, well, I didn't realize it right away. I think my beginning was just out of stubbornness. It was just natural stubbornness not to not to decide to give it up right away. But within the first year... Um, the same teacher that had told me, you know, that I should go back to the journalism department. Um, I was uh, with a couple of other students. We were auditioning for the Mer- the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco for the Summer Training Congress. And he asked me if he could write my recommendation letter. And he wrote the most beautiful letter. And in it, he basically said, I come from a long, long, long line of entertainment people. I've been in it all my life. And I've been of a certain opinion about how much can be learned and how much needs to be there. And he said, I've never seen anybody work so hard and develop talent so quickly as this guy. So, 
you know, he turned it all around. And, and that's when I realized, well, if I could learn that much in a year, sooner or later, I can be good at this. And then I, I questioned, there were, there were some guys that used to judge a one-act contest that they had there at the college. And they were working. They were doing episodics and commercials and working in the TV industry. And I asked uh, one of those guys, I said, so let's say I don't get Kevin Spacey good. <laughs> let's say I just get competent at right, it. Right, right. You know, do I stand a chance on making a living or am I just really wasting my time? And he goes, no, in my opinion, there's TV, there's episodics, there's guest characters, there's commercials. He said, I think if you're competent at this and you're smart, you could make a living. Now, of course, I ran into him about 15, 20 years later, and he goes, you know, we're talking about reality TV, and he goes, little did I know. Right. <laughs> you know, but because uh, things did change. But so, yeah, I just kept at it. I, I probably didn't stop training for the next 30 years. You know, I, I didn't finally stop going to acting class till around 2003 or four after you know that was 1977 you're so in 77 so now you do that and you get out now when when do you start getting work i mean now do you sit there do you get an agent right away or how does that process take i mean because you grew up around here so it's always i mean you grew up in brooklyn but you lived around here so it's always you know the area it's not like yeah. you know, when you first come here and go oh there's an agent in fullerton and someone goes yeah. hey it's an agent I'm like well i don't think you want an agent in fullerton but right. it's an agent i go it's fullerton okay it's not it's there's nothing wrong with fullerton but it's not even near yeah. la no i knew la was the place and and this is a good plug for my book confessions of a soup nazi and adventure in acting and cooking which is about the whole acting career and 52 of my own recipes i find interesting places to to stick in recipes where it makes sense and talk about them and stuff but uh so i tell this story there too but i i got kind of lucky right off the bat i i don't think it was cuz of my talent you know but uh you know, I looked a little like Pacino and Hoffman, and so I, I had a look that was kind of popular at the time. And uh, one day, a buddy of mine who was a little more advanced than I was, like as far as getting compliments on his work, someone talked to him, him into auditioning for this low-budget horror film at the time called Terror on Tour, which uh, if anybody has seen it on my IMDb page and known, knows anything about it, I tried to keep it off IMDb as long as I could, but marauders just got in there and finally put it there. But I took him to the audition, and I was sitting in the waiting room, and uh, Don Edmonds, who was directing it, comes out, and he goes, like, what are you auditioning for? I said, oh, I'm not. I'm just waiting for a friend. And he goes, oh, you're not an actor? And I went, well, uh, sort of. And he goes, what does that mean? I said, well, I'm taking it in college theater, but I certainly don't think I'm good enough to like do a movie or anything like that yet. Little did you know, you know, <laughs> and he goes, here, read this. And he handed me, you know, a scene and, and he came back out and I read it for him and he cast me as one of the leads. Now the movie is, is, is horrible. And my work in it is, is beyond bad cliche work for a horror film and stuff. But I, I guess the only thing I could say is, and sorry guys for the the four band members who were a real rock band who played the rock band in the movie, um, I wasn't the worst person in the movie, but close. Anyway, so I did that. So right off the bat, I do this movie. And now I'm thinking, God, you know, something may happen for me before I'm ready. That That scared me. So I thought of what can I do to throw myself into the fire because I was trying to learn how to sing. I wasn't really great at that. I was trying to learn how to act, taking private voice lessons. I was taking dance classes. And I just thought the scariest thing I see out there right now are people that do singing telegrams. So I got hired by a couple of singing telegram companies, and I was actually running around. Do And there's nothing. I don't think there has been since anything more humiliating i signed up for one of them back east like when yeah. i started to do stand-up comedy and her name was like jana banana i was like the company <laughs> and i went once and she and she goes okay you got to train now what you know is you're gonna go out with this guy and you're gonna wear a gorilla suit and hold ban uh balloons and i went out once and i said screw this <laughs> i'll go back to being a busboy yeah <laughs> it was think... it was horribly humiliating and there was only a little bit of money involved um but 
I, at the time, uh, getting out of the Valley College Theater Department, I was apprenticing at what used to be a really, really hot Hollywood theater group, uh, the Company of Angels. And they were doing a production of Three Penny Opera, and I got uh, to, to be the uh, prop guy. And so I was doing props, but I would, every once in a while during a performance, I'd have to run off and do a singing telegram, and the ASM would take my place and do whatever I needed to do there. And so the whole cast, and these were working professionals, they all knew that I was doing singing telegrams. So one night, uh, one of the lead actresses, it was her birthday, and we all went to, it's not there anymore, but when Baronies used to be in Toluca Lake. Okay. So we all went there, and everyone's getting drunk, and she gets really potted. And she starts going like, Larry, do one of your singing telegrams for me. And I'm just going, you know what? I don't even like doing them when I get paid to do them. I said, it's, it's horribly <laughs> embarrassing. I would really rather not do that, especially um, amongst a group of really good actors. I'm not even good at doing singing telegrams, you know, but it doesn't matter because it's all, you know, the person who you're doing it to is burying his face in his plate anyway. So nobody's listening right. to you. You know, it doesn't matter that your singing voice isn't that good. But she just kept on me and kept on me. So finally I said, okay. So I don't remember what it was I did, but I did some kind of a song to her and danced with her a little. But it turned out that one of the, or the guy that was playing Mr. Peachum, which was the lead in the play almost, uh, except for McKeith, he's uh, got a girlfriend with him who happened to have been one of the producers on a sitcom at that time, back in like 1979 or something. And uh, she comes up to me and she goes, you know, it's funny, but on the show, we're looking for a singing telegram messenger for the next episode. And we're just in a quandary of how do you get a singing? Do you hire a singing telegram messenger? Do you audition actors to do singing telegrams? And she goes, so how would you like to be on a sitcom? And I went, that would be nice. Yeah, of course. You know, and uh, so I got hired to do this to do this thing on the sitcom. And uh, it just turned out that then I got my first agent, who is a, 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 a wonderful lady. I still love her. Her name was Lee Columbia, and she worked for the William Carroll Agency. And she said, to, to begin with, let's see if we could get you your union cards. And she goes, um, have you done a, a, a SAG or AFTRA principal part? And I said, well, I did an after show where I did a singing telegram on it, but I haven't bought the union card yet because I got Taft Hartley. And she goes, well, it, was it a principal? And I said, I, I don't know. So she contacted the production company and got a copy of my contract, and it said principal. And so I joined AFTRA, and then back at that time, within one year, you could join SAG because SAG was closed after it was open. And then, and then there was even a window into e Actors' Equity, where you could join. So in this one year period, and and you know actors are going to hate to hear this, but back then each union was about three hundred bucks right. to join. Now it's like three thousand. Um, so within like a one year period, I was able to join all the unions, which was ridiculous for a beginning actor. Some actors go years trying to figure out a way in. So I considered that really really lucky that here I was off and running with union cards, barely knew how to do anything yet. And then it was just, from that moment on, it was just, okay, what do I do, you know? So I just started, you know, like a 15-year career in beg, borrow, and steal theater, auditioning for everything I could. The equity card was great because I got to go on those equity open calls, which were really throwing yourself into the fire at that time, they they would have to audition in L.A. I think most of the equity shows that came into L.A., the musicals and stuff, were probably already cast at like out of the road company or someone on Broadway that wanted to come to L.A. Um, but they would have to hold these full on auditions. And it was crazy. They could never see all the actors that would show up. But you'd go at like three o'clock in the morning and put your name on a yellow sheet of paper on the door, which was called the unofficial list. Okay. And, you know, to my amazement with humanity being such as it is, no one ever stole that list and put up a new one. Because <laughs> then you'd go back at like 6, 6.30, and it was still there. And so then they would take that list, and they would actually honor, you know, the the 
who is in line on that list first. So if you were lucky, by the time they started at like 9 a.m., you could be within those first two or 300 people that they would actually call into the room. And I did some horrible, I sang some really bad songs, did some horrible auditions, but I, I, I did get to do it. I, so that kind of really threw me into the fire and gave me a feeling like I was working towards it. But it was really the beg, borrow, and steal theater that I was learning from. You know, I'd, I'd either get cast in an equity waiver show or sometimes in desperation, I would just put one on. I would just produce it and direct it. And the steel part of it was us ending up behind um, home base at night, you know, getting scraps of wood for molding and stuff right. on the set. And, um, and then at one point, a bunch of my friends were really depressed because we hadn't gotten cast in anything. So I wrote a play. It's not the great American play by any means, but I wrote it for my friends and we put that on. And it was a lot of years at that. No more forays into television or film. So you were just um, you were just concentrating on theater and, yeah. was, and you were really getting your chops, your acting chops. Trying, yeah, and, and taking constant acting classes. And uh, it was the occasional agent. I think I let that first agent drift away because I just wasn't trying to get into TV that hard. And then... I think I might have signed with another one somewhere along the line, but it was mostly, I guess I'd have to say amateur work, but I needed to become decent at it. And occasionally a, a theater group, you know, I'd, I'd join a theater group and work with them. And, uh, and then in, it was probably around 1993, my son was born and I thought, okay, I have to become a professional. You right. know, I can't do this anymore. I did have a fantastic day job. And I know that one of the problems with young actors is the right day job. It's so hard. Waiting tables doesn't always give you enough money to survive. And some of these full-time jobs you get, the bosses will say, you know, either this or your acting career. Now, what was your job? I worked as a bail bondsman and a court investigator for a surety company. Okay. So... I was out on the road investigating court cases all day, and I could go on any audition I, I needed to, and at times go to play rehearsals and stuff and still get my work done. And, um, and then, you know, I would post bail bonds late at night at county jail and stuff, and that just was a slight loss of sleep. So it was a, a great job for an actor, and the greatest thing about being a bail bondsman was... Well, I'll jump back for a second. In 1993, I thought, I got to piss or get off the pot. And I called a friend of mine who was actually getting work, commercial work, some episodics and stuff. And he was studying at the Beverly Hills Playhouse with Milton Katselis. And it, it was a big organization, lots of classes, lots of students. I sort of heard about it, but stayed away from it because I heard, well, you're not going to get personal attention because there's too many students. But he said, get into the Playhouse. I will recommend you for the advanced class because, you know, you've been at this long enough. And this he did. And I got into that, the advanced class. I got to study with Milton. And Milton is, he's gone now. But to me, he was one of the genius teachers of his century. He really, truly was. Uh, the, to me, the genius of acting teachers come, comes from a guy that's so intuitive about the different actors' personalities what's holding them back, what their problems might be. It can't just be a book and a general, you know, course of study for everyone. And he really impressed me because early on in class, he sort of gave me a course of of study like casting, learning your best acting through correct casting for you. And so I had this monologue I wanted to bring into class and um, it was a big organization, so there were people that booked the monologues, there were people that, you know, stage managers, a lot of student workers. And I remember one night I went up to the guy that was casting, this, that was, uh, you know, doing the cast schedule, and I mentioned this monologue, and he goes, well, it's, you know, scene study first, and we usually only do monologues if they're assigned by the teacher, or if, uh, you know, we don't have anything on the schedule and we get desperate, so I can't really put that on the schedule. And, you know, you're going to have to do scenes instead. And and I just went, and he was younger than me. And I just went, I'm not going to deal with you, right. dude. And I turned around and I just went marching like a beeline. It was a break. We were on a break and Milton was out front with a bunch of people talking. And I just like marched up to him and I went, Milton, 
and he put his hand on my shoulder and he goes, Larry, stop thinking authority exists to keep you from doing what you think is right. Do whatever you want. And I just stopped and I went, that's my life, you know. You just summed up. <laughs> right. You just summed up like 35 years of a person's life. I just want you to know that. That's scary. But it was. That was that's that was me, a person who fought authority because it's there just to keep me from doing what's right. And I knew that wow, this guy he's going to be a great teacher cuz he knows me. And he was. You know, my acting improved by leaps and bounds. I had already really worked myself up to where I could be a competent professional, but I needed to get a little better. And then um, another great thing that uh, a guy that was in his master's class who was definitely his head substitute teacher was Jeffrey Tambor. And Jeffrey and I got along famously, I want to say right off the bat. You know, a couple of inner city Jews, me from New York, him from San Francisco, and we kind of understood each other. I was not only a big fan of his from the movie and TV work that I had seen, but I had been lucky enough to see him on stage a couple of times. And so um, cut to about two years in 1995, um, I'm desperate to get a job. I'm sort of informally under threat to be thrown out of class. Are you still working at the bail bonds? Yeah, I'm still, okay. that's still my day job. Um, I'm now, you know, under kind of a informal threat to be thrown out of class if I can't book some sort of a professional job in a certain amount of time. And so one night I did a monologue and, and Jeffrey was just unbelievably generous in his compliment to me. I mean, it was something that I had waited the whole career to hear from someone like him. And so all my friends in class thought that meant that I should ask him to do me a favor. And now I was against that because where I come from, if a guy pays you a compliment, you don't turn around and go, and can I have right. five bucks? Yeah, it's, you an, know? it's an East Coast thing. It's just... <laughs> yeah, it's this, that's enough. But they talked me into writing him a note and asking him to do something for me. And in true gentlemanly Jeffrey Tambor style, Within the end of the day of him reading my note, his assistant called me and said, will you have a, uh, a general interview with Mark Hirschfeld, who cast the Larry Sanders show, uh, Monday morning? And uh, that, like, set me all a panic because, you know, I was, I was doing a scene with a, a, a girl named, I got a plugger, Jody Tapple, because she's so responsible for this. We were doing a scene, and I couldn't concentrate, and she said, it's the meeting, isn't it? And I said, yeah, I can't think of anything else. And she goes, well, what, what are you thinking? And I said, look, it's a lose-lose situation, even from a positive standpoint. You know, I'm going to go in there, and I, of course he's going to say, so what have you been up to? What answer is there? He's heard five foot nine. You know, right. he, he's heard, oh, you know, <laughs> I'm a father. I've just taken my kid to school and being a dad. Um, he's heard, you know, well, I, you know, I'm in this equity waiver play, but nobody comes to see it. So I know you haven't seen it because I, four people came last night right. and I memorized their faces and you weren't one of them. So, um, I know my audience, you know, the only good thing is we actually outnumber them. So if they really hate the play and try to attack us, there's more actors on stage, you know, we have the majority, but I said, there's no real answer to that question. And I know he's going to ask it. And I said, the only answer that would impress him is, you know, well, I just got off Broadway, as you well know, or, you know, my TV just show just got canceled. But but if if that was your answer, you would not be having a general interview with an important casting person. So good old Jody, you know, you can never see the forest through the trees when it's when it's you. She immediately just goes, well, just tell him you're a bail bondsman that he's never heard that before. <laughs> And I went, really? You think so? And she goes, try it. And sure enough, you know, Monday morning, I walk in. Mark, who's just an incredible sweetheart. I, I adore him. I wish I was gay so I could marry him. But uh, he goes, so what have you been up to? And well, we first talked a little about Jeffrey because we both love Jeffrey, you know. And he goes, so what have you been up to? And I said, well, you know, I don't know if Jeffrey mentioned it, but I'm a bail bondsman. And he goes, what? And I said, I'm a bail bondsman. And he goes, well, what do you mean? And I said, you know, a guy that bails people out of jail and you know I investigate court cases and keep up on our defendants and whatever and he goes what I don't understand and he was so flummoxed 
that I actually had the perfect situation that I didn't think was possible. I had this important casting director in the palm of my hand. So the rest of the uh, interview, all we did was talk about the bail business, answered all his questions about do you surrender criminals? Right. Is it frightening? You know, is it dangerous? And all this stuff. And then at the end of the uh, audition, I'm just feeling like 100% more confident. And by the way, the entire time I noticed a big Seinfeld poster on his wall. And uh, so at the end of the thing, he goes, oh, by the way, Jeffrey said you do dialects. And I said, yeah, with a face like this, you know, I, I have to. <laughs> and I said, but I'm pretty good at it. I, I've got a good ear and I have studied phonetics and stuff. And he goes, good, because, you know, I also cast Seinfeld and we're always looking for, you know, ethnic characters, New York characters and stuff. And I said, well, I'm a big fan of Seinfeld. So, so. you were a fan. You were. A... Oh, God, yes. We I... had our own ritual. Isn't it, you know, it, isn't it great? I, I was watching it last night and. um I, you know, you sit there and you watch, and it was the man's ear, bro. Episode. Yeah, I love that. And and Larry Miller was so amazing on that with the doorman. But it's so funny because we'll flip around sometimes, and at seven thirty, you know, after dinner, because we always watch Jeopardy, and then at seven thirty, it's that filler till if we're going to watch TV at eight. And I put something old, and you know, even like God, twenty odd years later, it is so damn funny. And I just had Peter Melman on a few weeks ago. Oh, cool. Telling about the stories, and you watch it, and you go. Holy crap, it's like you never watch a Seinfeld and you might say, "Oh, that's one of my least favorite ones." But that least favorite one is better than almost any other TV show out there. It's amazing. You said it perfectly. That's that's exactly what I hear from from every fan I speak to, everyone I meet. Uh it it holds up amazingly. I I uh was just uh doing an appearance for Hulu uh because they bought all the episodes and they put together a Jerry's living room set on the streets of New or, you know, on a storefront <laughs> in New York city for a big, huge event. And, uh, you know, I talked to so many people, but you know, they, the big question was, and I was getting better at the answer by the end of the day. Cause I got asked it so many times, what do you think this streaming of Hulu of Seinfeld is going to do, you know, for the future Seinfeld audience or whatever? And I said, well, you know, it's funny, because I've, I already meet 13-year-olds that think Seinfeld is awesome. And to them, I say, so you don't sit there watching it and say things like, just Google it. Use your cell phone. Right. You know, and they go, no, man, we know it's retro and they didn't have that stuff. So that whole thing doesn't bother these kids at all. They're willing to watch and laugh at a show that has none of their solutions and technology, you know. But also, you know. A lot of young people don't watch reruns. They don't watch regular television. They're so immersed in their technology that they do watch everything on their tablets and on their phones and stuff. So that whole generation is going to be walking around with their tablets watching Seinfeld on the street. And that's going to be amazing because they've already got the new generation. Right. But it's going to be even more but yeah, back then I was a big fan. Our little ritual was to tape uh, Seinfeld and Frasier. Tape people. See, that's yeah, what it's called a VCR. It was, you, and, and it was a pain in the ass to set up because you have to sit there and do like eight different things. And then you'd end up being always like, okay, it's 9, 9 p.m. But and for some reason, you tape some at 9 a.m. And you go, what the hell? I taped the, uh, the I was in North Jersey at the beginning. It's like, oh, wait, I taped the... W, uh, you know, Secaucus, News of Secaucus. It always pissed you off. Yeah, and all you could do is fast forward through the commercials. <laughs> you couldn't just skip them, you know. But yeah, that, so, but we'd tape Seinfeld and Frasier on, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then on Sunday, when we put my son down for a nap, we would watch both. And it was always an hour that was over way too quickly, right. you know. Uh, so yeah, big Seinfeld fan at the time. I'm sure it helped with the audition. Uh, I've, through the years, had to audition for so many shows I've never seen. And it does, I, I can't tell you the amount of times that then I see an episode of the show after the audition and realize, oh God, I had the whole concept of the show wrong. Now, now when you auditioned, okay, when you got, you know, the casting call or what your agent said, did it say the soup Nazi? Or I mean, what did it say? That's all it said. It just actually. said soup Nazi. That's it. It, yeah. just, it said you're auditioning for a role for the soup Nazi. Yeah. Um, there was nothing. Because even back then, it was very common that they could fax you. I mean, we, we all had fax machines by then. They could fax you 
the scene you'd be auditioning with. And in this particular, because there was a thing called show facts we all had to belong right. to. But in this particular case, uh, there wasn't anything. They didn't want to, either they didn't have anything set yet. They didn't want to send anything out there for this episode. But I had this warehouse agent, which if, for the young people, back then, they may still exist. Warehouse agents were basically an agent that would accept anyone. They didn't care because they wouldn't do anything for you. They would just, they had a, the biggest part of their office was the room where all the pictures were. And they sat around only concentrating on the one or two people they did have that actually were working. And, uh, but you had their logo on your resume, so it wasn't your home phone number. And you would just hope that if they did get a call, they would call you. So um, I got a call one night from my warehouse agent. And it was just so funny because through the whole process of that, he always sounded like he had just seen Casper. You know, it was like, uh, Larry, this is uh, uh, Mike, your um, agent? And I go, yeah, I know you, Mike. Right. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> and I go, well, uh, Mark Hirschfeld's office just called, and uh, they want to see you for a character for Seinfeld. And he goes, it wasn't in the breakdowns or anything. I, you know, it wasn't, I didn't submit you. And I said, yeah, I'm well aware of that. Mike. <laughs> You're not getting your 10%, <laughs> yeah. damn it. You're not getting well, any of it. <laughs> you know, see, the rule, the SAG rule was that if you work for scale, which of course we all would, the 10% was over the top. The 10% was paid to the agent by the producer. So that's where it was sleazy symbiotic because it didn't actually cost you anything. They probably wouldn't give you the 10% if you but just booked it yourself. So the agent gets the 10%, you know, maybe he does some kind of negotiation, but he's not going to get you more than scale anyway if you're a nobody. Right. So it was, yeah, it was, it was there was a sleazy symbiosis to it all, but it was all necessary. So, but the, his, what he said to me was, the character is called the soup Nazi. There's nothing on paper, but they do want you to prepare some kind of Middle Eastern accent. So I went home and told my, uh, I was married to an actress at the time. So I went home and I had Lawrence of Arabia on VHS. <laughs> so I put it in and, uh, I, uh, and you know, Omar just passed away. So this is very poignant, but I put it in and I just fast forwarded to a couple of Omar Sharif scenes. I, I'd always loved his voice because as a little kid, I remember my mom and all the other Jewish divorcees got together one night and got drunk on martinis and attempted to call Omar Sharif. <laughs> they got as far as information, but I'll always remember my Aunt Lee trying to spell the name and going, S-H-A-R-E-E-F, E-E-F, however you spell E-E-F. <laughs> and I was this little kid watching this, cracking up. But so... He came into my mind immediately. So I had a couple of good little scenes. One scene where he's going, be warned. You're drifting, Lawrence. Drifting. And I thought, that's perfect. That's a Middle Eastern accent if I ever heard one. And uh, so I just kept repeating that and uh, uh, thinking about the soup Nazi and bouncing it off my wife a little bit because, you know, she's an actress. She's a character actress. And then a buddy of mine, Tom Ayers, who's a, a great stand-up and a really good actor. You I, know Tom? I, you know what? I met him years ago. I met him uh, at the Comedy Stop Comedy Competition. Yeah. We were both in that. And I I, we were, I think we worked a few times together, but we're talking, yeah. this is like 1990. Yeah. He's still at it. He's you know got a great resume of, of uh, acting work as well. Um, but we were... He was like the main person back then helping me on getting this job that would save me in class. And I called him and I said, you're not going to believe this. Because the day before I aud auditioned for the Power Rangers. Okay. For one line. <laughs> literally one line. And I go, you're not going to believe this. I have a reading tomorrow morning for Seinfeld. And he goes, because of the Jeffrey Tambor thing? And I said, yeah. You know, and he goes, oh my God. And he goes, so what is it? What is it? And I said, I, I don't know. It's just a character called the Soup Nazi. And uh, and the Middle Eastern accent, which I've already kind of worked up. And he goes, so there's no scene? And I said, no. And he goes, have you improved anything? And I said, yeah, this and that. And he goes, well, throw something at me. 
And I said, well, you know, the Seinfeld characters will probably get on his bad side. He's probably some really super militant ex-military guy that's now serving food in a cafeteria or something or on the street. And, you know, they're going to, like, make his life miserable. And he'll probably say something to George like, you, baldy, small fry, get to the end of my line or you get no soup. And Tom goes, I love that no soup thing. He goes, that has a, a ring to it, you know. And I went, really? And he goes, yeah, it just sounds like, you know, a catchphrase. And I went, wow, that's funny. And he goes, so, you know, if they do have a scene or if they don't have a scene, whatever, make sure you throw that in. And so the next morning came around and, you know, we're thinking costuming. I, I had already, somebody already told me don't over costume for professional television. You know, they think you're a commercial actor and whatever. So. I thought, you know, I'll just wear jeans and a white T-shirt and borrowed one of my... My wife was, of course, waiting tables, and I borrowed one of her aprons. And I was looking in the mirror, and she goes, that looks right. And I said, yeah, but... And she goes, but what? And I said, I don't know. I've got all of this inspiration. I don't want to come off as amateurish or anything, but I've got this really strong <clears throat> inspiration. And she said, what? And I said, well, if they're calling him the Nazi, chances are part of that is because he's so strict, and part of it is he may be wearing an army uniform, you know? And she goes, well, show me. And I had this old army shirt from the 70s. One of the kids' older brothers came back from Vietnam and gave it to me, I think, and always kept it. You know, used to wear it back then, but I don't throw things away. And I had a pair of green pants, and so I put that on with a black T-shirt, and I hadn't shaved in a few days, and I had the mustache. And I'm looking in the mirror, and she goes, wait a second. And she goes to her side of the closet, and she gets a beret and puts it on my head. And we both stood there looking in the mirror, laughing, <laughs> going, because, you know, it was 1995, and Saddam Hussein was, you know, a pretty popular character. You know, right. him and Princess Di, you know, <laughs> were the most likely to be seen on People magazine. But I did. I looked a lot like Saddam Hussein, and she goes, so? And I said, well... The only question now is, do I have the courage to walk into a professional <laughs> casting office like this? For Seinfeld, yeah. a show you love, too. Yeah. And she goes, well, I think you have to. And so I went down there, and sure enough, there were about four or five other guys, uh, you know, Middle Eastern types, and they were all wearing jeans and a white T-shirt and aprons. And I, so I took the beret, and I put it in my back pocket, <laughs> thinking, oh, God, I'm going to... And I br didn't bring any other clothes in my car, so there was no room to chicken out. Yeah, you, that's it, man. It's all in line. <laughs> and then I noticed there was some... There was a scene. It said Soup Nazi on it, so I took it. And, you know, there's an old adage you learn pretty quickly on in, in auditioning is, you know, don't ever uh, read the scene in the room for the first time out loud. Always duck off into bathroom or somewhere and hear your voice out loud so you don't get surprised by the sound of your own voice. So I went out into an alley uh, behind the building, and I realized there was, a, you know, three scenes there, and I started to read the first one out loud, and, of course, it was the first scene almost as you know it on TV. And, of course, right after the whole bread thing, I say, no soup for you. And I looked at it, and I went, Wow. You know, it was like, that's what I said last night. <laughs> right. And I, I thought, I felt lucky. I thought that. Wait, the script said No Soup for yeah, You? Yeah. Okay. That Spike wrote that. Spike Barriston, the writer, he wrote No Soup for You. Um, but I had also thought of the phrase No Soup the right. night before. You... So it made me feel lucky. I felt kind of lucky. Anyway, I went, the, uh, the associate casting was a guy named Brian Myers, who I think later cast uh, Just Shoot Me and some other stuff. And it was just him, him and I in an office. And he, he goes, you know, uh, Mark said you do dialects, so you probably have the dialect, so why don't we just do it? And I said, uh, okay, wait a second. And I took the beret out of my back pocket and I put it on, and he just laughed. <laughs> and I thought, he's either laughing because I'm an idiot or because <laughs> it's funny. So we did those three scenes, and he, he laughed. I wasn't that used to, um, you know, television auditions at the time, so... I didn't really know what it meant. Years later, I, I was to realize exactly what happened in that audition, and it was good. But at the time, I didn't know it, so he laughed in all the right places. And then at the end of it, he said, well, you know, we're kind of unsure about this episode, uh, so with whatever we do, we'll, you know, we'll let you know. Um, many years and a 100 television auditions later, I realized that 
anything offered to you, but thanks for coming in is good. You know, at least it means I like you, you got a shot. But not knowing it at the time, you know, I left and, you know, I felt good about the fact that he laughed. But then almost three weeks passed by. And even though I didn't know a lot about TV, I kind of figured I probably didn't get a call right. back. Right. And uh, one day I'd written Jeffrey a letter that I uh, was going to give him in class that night. And I was just going to say, you know, um, uh, thanks so much. I got an audition out of it. It was a big audition, bigger than I ever thought possible. And I think the casting director liked it. And even though I didn't get it, I, you know, I really have you to thank for getting me into that room and into that position. And so I think I, I think I was going to skip class that night and take one of those casting director workshops, but I gave it to somebody else to give him. And then the next day I, uh, got a page, 1995, from Mike, the warehouse agent. And I called him, and it was the same, I've just seen a ghost voice saying like, uh, Larry, it's uh, Mike, your uh, agent? <laughs> he goes, I, I just got a call. Did you, didn't you audition for Seinfeld a, a couple of weeks ago? And I said, yes, I did, Mike. And he goes, oh, well, they, they want to see you again. Uh, tomorrow morning, you know, producers building five, CBS Radford, 11 a.m. And, uh, you know, I said, okay, great, great, thanks. You know, and the, the, when I got home, there was a message from one of my fellow students saying that I gave Jeffrey your note last night and he says he has something to tell you. So I don't know if, if he knew before I knew. Right, right. I don't even know if he had something to do with the callback or whatever. You know, but then then the callback situation, that's a whole other story. That was probably the strangest day of my life auditioning for anything. And of course, I'm sure the most successful day of my life. And uh, Peter Melman actually plays a part that I had no idea who he was. I had no idea who anyone was, but I got there and I didn't know you couldn't park on the lot. So I had to park on the street and it all made me about five minutes late. And I get up there and the first thing I see just scared the bejesus out of me because I see a bunch of other actors that none of them look like the soup Nazi. None of them look like they're auditioning for the soup Nazi. So I kind of figured maybe they're the other characters right. or whatever. And uh, But I did see one man that I was quite sure was auditioning for the soup Nazi. And if you know anything about veteran character actors, his name is Richard Libertini. And he's legendary. You know, if you knew the movie um, All of Me with Steve Martin and... Uh, Lily, Lily Tom, and he was the Indian guru running around with the ball going, Edwina backing ball. Right. Put Edwina backing ball. And then on the original in-laws with Peter Falk and Alan Arkin, he was the South American military general with the little face painted on his hand. Pepe, he'd make everybody kiss it. And uh, I just took one look at him and I just, my only thought was like, what am I doing here? I, I could be just going to work. You know, <laughs> I'm taking time off work for this. And, um, uh, all of a sudden, Mark Hirschfeld comes out of the room and he goes, oh, good, you're here. Come on in. And he hands me some paper. I hadn't even signed in yet. He drags me into the room and I see this room full of people. There's a lot of people in that room. And it was a long room. But at the end of the room were two desks, kind of like dueling pianos, you know. And, and one desk was sitting this bald man who I didn't recognize. And at the other desk was Jerry Seinfeld. And Jerry went like, hey, how you doing? And... um. I, of course, wanted to go, wow, Jerry. Right, right. But years ago, I had taken this uh, short workshop with a great actress named Sherry North, who later was Babs Kramer on Seinfeld, okay. oddly. But Sherry told me one time, she goes, you're a character actor. And, and when you're, you know, it, even in the very most professional situations, if your character is extreme, don't break character. Just come in and read. Because a lot of producers don't have the imagination to separate if they hear your real voice or see your real personality. So that that struck me and I just looked at Jerry and went, huh. and I just grunted at him. And then Mark goes, okay, well do the same thing as you did in the room with Brian, let's just read. And so we launched into it. And I tell you, I've in all the years since I've never heard anybody laugh like Jerry Seinfeld was laughing 
not only in all the right places, he was just basically laughing at the pauses. He was laughing, you know, at clearing your throat. He was just laughing his head off. And I knew it was him because I knew his voice. Right. And um, and it was amazing because he didn't write the script. You know, writers are famous for laughing at their own jokes and auditions, and you're supposed to not let that get to you because it's not you. It's their, They're just listening to their own words. But it was Jerry, and he was laughing. And uh, I got done with those first three scenes and realized that there was more. And again, another actor's thing is... If that happens to you, just excuse yourself and say, well, I'm sorry, I haven't seen this yet. You know, I'm going to step outside. May I step outside and take a look at it? But I, I just had to break that rule because the guy was laughing and it was rolling. And so I just read the next three scenes stone cold, like ice cold off the paper. And he laughed and laughed. And then, you know, I was done. I felt really good. Mark immediately said don't leave so i went outside and i sat in a chair and probably sat for about half an hour and uh uh the next thing that happened was that when they called then they brought uh mr libertini in and then he came out and he left and then mark came out and he went up to yule vasquez and john paragon who were the armoire thieves in my episode and i overheard in the annals of things actors shouldn't overhear I overheard him say to them, you guys are cast, be at Soundstage 9 at 1 o'clock for work, for table read. And I'm sitting there going, oh, I, no, 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 no. I wish I hadn't heard that. And so a little while later, he comes back out and he brings me in and uh, he goes, uh, Jer Jerry goes, you know, I like what you did. Funny. But he goes, can you, I, I'm not, on, I don't really understand why the character is so mean. So he goes, can you do it again? And he makes this hills and valleys kind of motion with his hand, which had since acting school become the least favorite thing that I could ever see anybody do with their hand. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and you could think of that as you wish. But um, so he does that and he goes, so, you know, maybe he's nice in some places or whatever. And I thought, God, how am I going to get through six scenes reading it this way? Right. Because I totally disagreed with it. And, you know, I didn't see it at all that way. And uh, so I tried. I really tried. And he didn't laugh at all. He didn't even laugh when I said no soup for you, you know. And I'm thinking, like, well, that went, there went that. You know, once again, you know, my take is not appreciated and whatever. But oddly enough, Mark goes, don't leave. And I go out there and I sit down again. And by by this time, I'm thinking, I just wish I could go, you know. And then Peter Melman, who I didn't know was Peter Melman, came out of the room and he said hi to me. And he goes out on the balcony and he's sitting on the balcony and I'm just envying him so much. I just wish I could be anywhere but in this chair. And uh, then he went back in and it just seemed like so long. And then finally Mark comes back out and he goes, you know what? And I'll never forget these words. We're having something of a conceptual disagreement in there. Go ahead and go home, and, you know, if we need you, we'll call you. And I, you know, thank you. Thank right. you for releasing me. And so I got up, and remembering that I heard him cast John and Yule already, I thought, well, that's that. So I, I leave the building, and as I'm leaving the building, here comes the man I still don't know is Larry David with Richard Libertini coming back. So that is what I knew happened. And I went to a payphone that used to be behind Soundstage 9. Sadly, it's it's not there because I'd, I'd love to have it in my apartment. But I called my wife and I just said, you are not going to believe what just happened on every level. I said, first of all, it was six scenes, not three. And she's going, oh, my God, that's like a big guest star. And I said, yeah. And I said, and... I was reading against Richard Libertini. That's who I lost the part to. And she's going, oh, my God. And I said, and you know what? I said, for a, a while there, it was looking really good. I said, I got to consider this half a success until I didn't get it. And she goes, wow, what a morning. And I said, yeah, I think I'm going to skip work the rest of the day. I said, let's go to the beach or something, you know, and celebrate. And she goes, okay. So I hang up the phone. I get about 10 feet away, um, little omen because 
the next thing Mark cast me in was Grace Under Fire. I look over at uh, the next soundstage, and Brett Butler is sitting there in a chair, and she goes, hi. And I just kind of went, hi. <laughs> wow, that was weird. Anyway, my pager goes off, so I didn't get very far, and I go back to the payphone, and it's Mike, the warehouse agent, and then his, I've just seen a ghost voice. He goes, uh, Larry? He just saw two ghosts this time, because it's like, Larry? Uh, it's Mike, your agent? Um, uh, you just uh, got hired on Seinfeld. And I went, what? Yeah, in my own, I've just seen a ghost voice, you know, and I just, what? And I think I even said, like, why? And he goes, well, they, they need you to go over to Soundstage 9. Uh, just so you know, it's it's top of show pay, which is $2,610 for the week. And, um, and it's the title character, if you didn't know that already. And so it's the biggest guest character on the show this week. And I went, wow, wow. And so I hung up the phone, you know, and... Uh, I had never gotten paid more than $185 a week right. to act. I think the Power Rangers episodes, which, by the way, I did book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My one line on Power Rangers um, was $150. So $2,610 sounded awfully good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? And you didn't know it was going to change your life. Yeah. You know, We only have a few minutes left. And I, you have to come back again because I want to talk about, you know, after just everything that, that how that role changed your life and all about because it's an hour show this is already yeah. is an hour i mean this time flew by but no because i want to talk to you about how after the how it changed and then now we had talked quickly at max uh party how you have a lot of uh cons uh independent people contacting you to move, mm -hmm. do movie roles so i if you ever we'll have to set it up because time flew so we're not gonna be able to talk about your whole career we'll after. do this again no because it was Part just two yeah because no i well, i'd like to because it's it's i'm just sitting there i looked and i went holy crap we just got to you know there's three minutes left but it's so funny that it just shows that you know you sat there and the good thing is though even though you didn't think you got the part, you weren't sure, you were still going to go celebrate. Yeah. And I think maybe that was just a, a, a positive. Maybe you pushed the positive out there and someone said, Could be. Hey, you know, he's going to come celebrate. And, you know, now, now, uh, did you, when you went back for the second read, did you, did you wear the beret? No. Okay. So I totally chickened out and left it in my back pocket, possibly because I saw Jerry, possibly because I rushed into the room so quickly and, I was just sort of fumbling with what to do first, you know. Now, when did you find out it was Larry David? <laughs> um, oh, on the set, because he he was very much in control of everything. Uh, that was that was certainly at the point. I don't know when it exactly occurred, but that was at the point where no network person dared show their face on the set for rehearsals. I mean, they had to sit in the audience and watch the show with everyone else. Because if you disturbed Larry, he would probably quit. He would probably go like, you know, you know, I, I can't do this anyway. What, who am I fooling? I've I heard, quit. I've heard you stories know? like when he did so, stand up. So I very much met him right away, realizing that even though Andy Ackerman was directing and a wonderful director and gave me one of the best directions ever, Larry was the king. And it was great to be in his hands. So, you know, the rest of the story, of course, is just history and great history, and they let it. They let me do it my way, and that's perfect. You know, so and we're gonna have to wrap soon. So just so, uh, give me your info. You have a, your website is realsoupnazi.com. No the in front of it, just okay. realsoupnazi.com, and you could you could get my book on it. Find out more about my book. It's a 398 page uh, sort of memoir with recipes, really all about every step of the darn acting career from the you know, Valley College days to to a, to when I finished writing it last year. And uh, lot, 52 recipes, eight of them are soup. And um, a lot of other stuff. There's, I've done some recent really fun commercials because, uh, you know, people are beginning to want to see how far can I stretch using the soup Nazi persona without infringing and stuff. Right. I've done some really fun commercials lately and doing we, that we can find it all on the website all of it is on the website so go to soup nazi real soup, real soup, real soup nazi. Nazi .com, people also go to my website cooper coopertalk.net i have over 395 episodes up follow me on twitter at cooper talk you tweet yes uh real soup nazi at uh, real soup nazi follow larry at real soup nazi and yeah and please check out his stuff buy his book and also buy my book stop the salt.com you know when i got out of the hospital i wrote that 120 recipes of low sodium cooking for one they're great recipes. They're easy to make. No pictures to confuse you. 
buy it from me. You can get it to Amazon, but I don't make as much money. And if you buy it from me at StopTheSalt.com, I will sign it. So I want to thank my guest, Larry Thomas, who's going to come back because we, we, we aren't even get to anything I wanted to talk about. And I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'll see you guys next week.